Welcome to Future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, and together we'll explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Future of XYZ is presented in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. We are uh, incredibly privileged to host a conversation on the future of globalization with Karen Klonblow. Um, Karen, how... Um, Thank you so much for joining us. I, I, I'm I'm going to dive in in a second. Um, did I say your last name right, by the way? So the best way to think of it is corn like the vegetable, blue like the color, even though it's spelled nothing like that. <laughs> well, that's, that makes it easy. And in your life as uh, the former ambassador to the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is a member group for about 32 of the world's most developed economies, um, and as your work, obviously, uh, with Obama before he became president and putting together that uh, Democratic platform for his first uh, run for, for president, as well as working with Senator John Kerry and working under Clinton in various functions in Treasury um, uh, and Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, your name pronunciation being easy <laughs> probably <laughs> is quite helpful. <laughs> Um, but you really have quite a myriad background, and it's super impressive, I have to say. Um, I want to give you a chance in all sorts of different ways to pull that experience in, including as a member on the Council of Foreign Relations and former advocate there, on what um, is, how do we define globalization in, in, in 2023? That's a great question. So I think there's a lot of debate about that very topic. It's a very hot topic. And a lot of people are declaring globalization dead. And um, and but then they're disagreeing about about what comes next. So um, the National Security Advisor actually gave a speech where he talked about a new Washington consensus. And the old Washington consensus was really about free trade and open markets and free flow of capital. And that really defined this era of globalization. And he was saying, you know what, there's a new Washington consensus that says the market isn't always right, and we need to have resilient supply chains that we may just build with our allies, and we have to worry about climate change. So that's so. It, what he was basically saying, I think, is that the laissez-faire um, free trade globalization era was over, and he was sort of positing what, in his view, was the new Washington effort actually at 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 what it should be next. My fear is that um, the way a lot of other countries are looking at us and looking at our new industrial policy and looking at us when we say the market doesn't always work, even though this isn't what we mean, is that they are thinking, oh, that's just protectionism. Oh, that's just nationalism. Let's let every country now be a nationalist. Let's let every country be a protectionist. And then we wind up in a lose-lose situation. So even though that's not what the administration means, I think while we move away from globalization to something new, we have to really fill that vacuum and build a lot of alliances to make sure that that, that isn't the impression people have and that's not the path people go down. I, I want to take one step back because I where we're heading is obviously the whole point yeah. of this conversation on the yeah. globalization. But globalization is something, I mean, in, in, in all sorts of different manners, Really, trade you just mentioned is a fundamental component of it, and it and it's come about 
because of capitalism, really, and 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 economic growth of the last, let's call it, two hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, it obviously has ebbed and flowed since then. But with your background, I mean, FCC, for example, and telecommunications, really being at the forefront of the uh, of the internet, um, which was our our last episode, actually, right before this, uh, was with David Kirkpatrick, who you might know. Oh yeah. Um, and on the future of the internet, um. With your background, so richly immersed in communications and telecommunications and e-commerce, I mean, what is besides trade and 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 commerce? What are the elements of of maybe technology that are involved in globalization today? And what are maybe some of, you know, the risk factors as we start to define this new agenda or move away from lazy lazy fare, as you said, globalization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right to bring up telecom. I mean, I think people just think of trade when they think of globalization, but of course, the internet, the global telecommunications networks, and then the internet that rides on top of it, um, and the financial markets, the international financial markets, those networks, both of those were really key to, for instance, having your call center in India or the Philippines, to being able to have... Um, component parts for an automobile come from so many different countries. And we just took that all for granted. Um, and I think um, there has been this, this phrase that these two academics uh, have used, uh, the weaponization of interdependence, that we all became really interdependent. And then different countries can weaponize that to get leverage. So China, most notably, um, uh, has tried to do that by not, you know, even though they we 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 welcome them into the WTO, they subsidize their semiconductor industry, they subsidize their telecommunications networks, which um, the U.S. says are are cybersecurity vulnerable, hugely vulnerable to get. Then they want those to get into other markets so that presumably they have leverage. So um, it's, it, it, you know, I think this globalization, when you unpack it, it's really interesting because it includes not just trade, the way you think of it, of goods and services across border, but um, bits across border, of dollars and other currencies across border. And now as we, as different countries are reacting to the vulnerabilities that that has caused, um, there's going to be a lot of reshuffling, but a lot is going to, we're not going to stop that trade. Like we couldn't, we're all so dependent on each other. The amount of trade that the U.S. and China has is enormous. That's not going to stop tomorrow. Not, not to mention, and and uh, we won't go down this rabbit hole, but not to mention that we're one tiny planet spinning in a, a, a universe of universes that we really should be kind of bonding rather than fighting uh, for resources in a, in a limited resources environment. Um. Let's come back to the argument that people are moving away from the old globalization beyond the fact that there is perhaps a very real need for a new version, a new agenda with more um, controls in place, especially against uh, dis and misinformation and privacy concerns and cybersecurity concerns um, uh, uh, and, and equality concerns, which I want to be able to get to. But there is also a true anti-globalist sentiment underway for whatever series of reasons that argue that it is not the world's greatest asset or solution, but actually the biggest problem. I mean, do you 
a, a does this like kind of resonate? What are kind of the accelerants to that argument? And is it simply that, you know, globalization might need a rebranding? I mean, I'm a branding person, so like it needs to be repositioned. And what would that look like for you? Well, I think there's there are there are a lot of different kinds of objections. I mean, one of the things that's going on right now is we we're pretty close to a global debt crisis. So a lot of countries in the global south are really feeling very vulnerable. Um, some of their loans are to China. China is less willing to renegotiate on the debt than traditionally um, Western countries and the multilaterals have been willing to. So that's one complaint about globalization, that it's really been sort of neocolonialism, that you want us to grow, and yet, you know, we're in debt. How are we going to be able to do that? We need to, we're, we're dealing with um, climate change that's the fault of the global north, and yet, um, and yet how can we if we're busy making debt payments? So there's that complaint about globalization. And there's another complaint about globalization that's coming from you know, workers in the West who are saying, um, you know, our jobs have gone to other countries and we want to stop trade, you know, and Trump said that and Biden says that to some degree, you know, we don't we don't want to have the hollowing out of manufacturing. We don't want to have our jobs go overseas. And then you have, um, a, a, you know, a China, which is, you know, um, put out this made in China plan where they said, you know, we want to be the world's leader in all these technologies. We don't want to depend on the United States. Um, and where we have other countries that are saying, uh, we don't want our citizens' data going to the US because we want to use it to make our own AI industries, or we don't think that the US protects privacy well enough. So there are a lot of different things pulling at this globalization. And that's natural. You know, of course, there are problems with it. And I think the question is, um, we've I think we had a we have had a hard time patching it in part because China has sort of veto power over the WTO changes in the WTO. Um, we're unable to change the IMF We're unable to World change- Trade Organization, International Monetary Fund. All Thank these- you. Thank uh, you. Yeah. yeah all those course. acronyms. All those acronyms. The, the, the- because right. those are all the non-governmental cross-international organizations put in place largely it held up the globalization exactly and so we and they were largely it was very hard Sorry, sorry i just want to say they were largely put in place after world war ii to rehab largely europe but also obviously the world at large and and that was called the marshall fund actually and you're now um, the director of global of digital, I, I think it's uh, I think it's called GMF Digital now um, at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. So y- these new policies, if you will, and these counter arguments for kind of anti globalization are largely in your purview, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. I, and what are the policies that you think are really imperative right now uh, for us to kind of enact as a as as Exactly as you just said, given, for instance, that China has veto power in the WTO. Right. I mean, I think one of the key things we have to do, and this this sounds technical and boring, but um, we have to think of new ways to work internationally besides um, just striking free trade agreements. I mean, I think free trade agreements have a real purpose because um, we want goods and services to go back and forth. We want other we want to reward countries that. 
uh, we want to do business with. But um, where we can't do that, where we say we have to pause, where we say we're not going to be able to negotiate something that deals with climate, that, you know, lets us have manufacturing, we have to find other ways of working internationally. So for instance, on semiconductors, we have semi in our new post-globalization industrial policy, we've, we've just enacted on a bipartisan basis tens of billions of dollars in semiconductor subsidies. Well, guess what? So is Europe. Are we going to go to war, uh, a subsidy war with Europe? No, we have to coordinate and really coordinate on that. So the, the Trade and Tech Council is meeting in Sweden today and tomorrow, and they're agreeing on, on this, that, that we're going to coordinate on semiconductor subsidies. But we really have to figure out how to do that in an ongoing basis, be willing to, what are we willing to share with other countries? Who's going to do that? What do we set up? Like that kind of boring work really has to be done. And I'll, uh, you know, and we need to do that on clean energy and we need to do that on um, raw material, critical material, m- minerals, where we're going to need to work with other countries besides the U.S. and Europe, because U.S. and Europe don't have a lot of those critical minerals. And we're not willing to do some of the mining that's really dirty that um, needs to be done. So um, I'll give you an example of what happened in another era where we will need to work internationally. Uh, when OPEC, uh, the, the uh, oil producing oil and petroleum, yep, um, got together and they had the oil embargo, Henry Kissinger of all people started this organization called the International Energy Agency. And what the IEA did was it got all these countries together that were oil purchasers to share forecasts of demand and what supply they had and to coordinate when they were going to release excess oil from their reserves so that they could ease market strains. So those are the kinds of international things. Or in the financial market, we have the Financial Action Task Force that works on money laundering. So we can work internationally without only doing things through the WTO, you know, that are trade. And I think we need to, need to fill this vacuum of, oh my gosh, globalization isn't working with other kinds of international activities. Well, I love that because, and I think you've argued for this. Uh, I, I read an article that you you were commented on in Politica recently, which is really about seeking answers to the, the shared challenges of the 21st century and beyond that we really need. To, what does best practice look like? And I, 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 I think cooperation is a big piece of that, of course, you know, coordinating domestic and international policies. I mean, you just talked about an example of this. Where else is this happening? And 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 I mean, I know you're a graduate of Bryn Mawr College as well as of the Harvard, you know, Kennedy School of Government. Um, where is this being taught? Where is this happening? Where is this being taught? I mean, this seems like a new model of leadership, I have to say, instead of this like, you know, pound your chest kind of masculine power dynamic. This is this is about cooperation and consideration. And that's so interesting. I mean, yeah, we're we're coming up to Janet Yellen. It's funny that you say like masculine versus feminine. So Janet Yellen, who's the female Treasury Secretary, has been talking about something called friendshoring. So instead of onshoring or offshoring, how do we do supply chains with our allies? I, I love that idea. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we do have to think about new models of cooperating to deal with some of these things that, you know, there's this, again, when you say sort of um, new ways of leading and new ways of thinking, there's been this very traditional, these are the hard issues of trade and national security. And then these are the soft issues of climate and inequality. And we're realizing that we can't, those are not separate. 
that they cause each other, that, you know, if you have inequality, it hurts your economic growth. If you have inequality, it hurts your national security and vice versa. So we're learning. And I think you're right. I think this is a new leadership challenge, getting people to understand that, you know, gender equality is not a soft issue, that it's crucial to these other issues. And so we, we need to have a new kind of leadership that deals internationally um, diplomatically, but also sort of at this technical level. And I think we've, I think there were these, as I said, like Kissinger set up the IEA, the FATF was set up for finance. I think those muscles of what are we going to do? Um, how are we going to do it? What options are there? I've gotten sort of, we, we don't have those muscles anymore. And so we need to, I think we've, we've, I think we've defaulted to let's strike a trade agreement. And I think to find different different methods of working together and putting some of these challenges first and foremost. So we're rejecting something, but like, what are we going to put in its place? Right. It's it's like when every when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We've we've exactly. come, we've come to that. It's interesting. I mean, I, I in in reviewing your background a little bit, Karen. I mean, you, very impressively as the ambassador to the OECD, working with then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. There are a lot of. Um, a lot of policies that you put in place, including the OECD gender um, initiative. And I know that working families is a very, very big and gender equality is a very, very big part of your own personal mission. From what I can tell, the New York Times actually described you as a passionate and effective advocate for economic equality. You talk about we have to have a new model. Not everything is a nail just because we have a hammer beyond also how we teach it and kind of a new leadership paradigm. There is a role of the individual. There is the role that we've been talking about of the governments and of the non-governmental organizations and cooperation. But what is the role of corporations as well in 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 this new globalized world? Yeah, very, very important. And one of the things that I got a little nervous about with the National Security Advisor's speech about the new Washington consensus was he said, he rightly so, I don't, I don't, question what he was literally meaning, but he said the market doesn't always work. Of course, that's true. You know, economists say that's true. The market doesn't always work. But um, I don't want to cede the whole idea that, you know, we want markets to work. We want to do what we need to have markets work. And we want, you know, businesses to grow and we want to create jobs and we want to create economic growth. Um, and I think there's a real question about what the role of the corporation is. Should the corporation just respond to the incentives that are created for it. And its job is just to make money for its shareholders and, you know, grow and make as much profit. Or does it have sort of more of a societal responsibility and responsibility to its workers? And I think there's a lot of pressure on corporations to figure out what to do. And even some of the things that they thought they were doing that were just pretty much pro forma, like um, respecting LGBTQ rights are now becoming these huge political quandaries for them. And so I think if you're a corporate leader or if you're a future corporate leader, you really have to think long and hard. And I think I think you have to decide, you know what? No, it was never really true that my only job was to my shareholders. Absolutely. You know, that I do have, to, there are certain, but we're an institution 
We're given certain tax benefits, certain legal protections as a corporation. And we have bigger, I would argue that your shareholders shareholders beyond your your stakeholders, right? It's a stakeholder conversation versus a shareholder conversation. Right. And so I think you really have to think about um, what does that mean to just operate in, in our new society, our new economy, that you have some real responsibilities. But that's really challenging. And you have to think about it before you're in a crisis. I think I'll respect you if you say, you know what, that's outside of my knitting. I'm not going to get involved in that. Uh, But you know what, this is important to my customers, is important to my employees, is important to my leadership. You know, I'm going to take this stand and you, you can't wait until you're in a crisis. And this is where I think various business organizations can be really useful at helping people so that not each one doesn't learn from ground zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think I think there's a new kind of education that's required to deal with the new environment we're in. Um, it, I, I mean, that's like a, um, a conversation for the future of education. I mean, and in, in, in our future foreign policy leaders, you know, we've talked about the future of power with actually a professor at, at Kennedy School and HBS. We've talked about the future of foreign relations. I mean, I think these are all uh, educational, but as an MBA, it comes to that place also where in business, we have to start talking about it. And we are, and to some degree, my alma mater in Seattle, for instance, is talking about yeah. global leaders quite a lot. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that I'm hearing from you, and, and we're going to wrap up here in a minute, is, is about the role of, and responsibility of everyone kind of coming together. It's the individuals as consumers, it's the individuals as shareholders, it's the individual as leaders, but it's also in cooperation with governments creating good policy non-governmental organizations looking for, you know, something beyond trade agreements um, and and working cooperatively. And then also, obviously, this role of the corporation and and coming back to telecom and the internet and the future of technology, because that obviously is where your role is focused at the German Marshall Fund, which is to help shape a future in which technology strengthens versus undermines democratic values, which is a very powerful conversation at the moment. I mean, uh, and I'm going to, just to keep us moving, Karen, so it's a yes or no. I mean, my summary of what you just said is is in fact that it's all of those parties together who need to start thinking about how are we going to manage AI? How do platforms themselves address the algorithm, algorithms and other design kind of loopholes that allow for misinformation or to be weaponized in the first place? Um, and, and this is a coordinated effort, but corporations really have to take uh, a powerful stance themselves. Yeah, I think this is really, I want to go back to something you said before, leadership. Leadership is really important. I think if the leaders of the platforms had taken a stand earlier on, on disinformation, we'd be in a different place. If the government had said, you know, had, had said, this is not the way we're going to go, you know, um, it really requires people not to act like, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any flexibility, you know, whoever pays me, I'm going to run their ad. Um, what what can I do? We really, we, I think we're in a period where we need real 360 degree leaders who are looking at all these various priorities and, and saying, you know, what's important and what are values. Yeah. I think that's really, it, it's, it's, it's not okay just to go along in this environment. Values are words uh, that I firmly, I've always uh, described myself as a values-led brand builder. And I do think that that's kind of your GPS, right? I mean, your coordinates for business or for your personal life based on your values. So that that resonates. 
as we um, look really towards the future, since we are the future of globalization, yeah, um, you know, we talked about this before. It's a growing interdependence is kind of how globalization has historically been described. The world's economies, cultures, populations, et cetera. Kind of based on your incredible expertise, where do you see things heading in the next five to 10 years? I mean, I think we're, we're at a real fork. You know, um, you talked about democracy. I mean, what we don't want is for the authoritarians, for China, Russia, authoritarian regimes to uh, to see a vacuum and to fill it by saying we're going to have this, um, you know, repressive regime led, directed economies, protectionism, nationalism, so we can control our citizens, that that's the future. We really don't want that. And so democracies and our allies, you know, the countries that are sort of, you know, on the fence, we need to pull them together into a new system that is about economic growth and it's about trade, but it's about a level playing field. And that says we're going to address climate change. We're going to address, you know, resilience, supply chains, um, and we're going to do it with transparency and we're going to be better at innovation and we're going to be better at economic growth. Like we're not sacrificing those things. We're actually going to be better at them. And I think that's going to take like a lot of hard work. You know, I think this debt ceiling conversation we were just in was really instructive. In the U.S. If you yeah. look at the, if you and If you look at that conversation, if you only measure things by the budget deficit, a subsidy for a fossil fuel company and a child tax credit or an R&D tax credit are all valued exactly the same. But one of them is going to cause economic growth. Not only is it going to be better from a societal point of view, from a climate point of view, but from, you know, a human capital point of view. Right. Um, from an innovation point of view and an economic growth, it's going to be better. And so we need more different kinds of metrics, different kinds of evaluation. Uh, to Time scales, perhaps. And different timescales. We have a 10-year budget window. If you have a child tax credit, every economist will tell you that's going to lead to more economic growth. But is it going to lead to more economic growth in the 10-year time window? No, it's going to look like a cost. Right. 10-year time window. So now the fossil fuel subsidy may actually look like it causes some economic growth. But, you know, that's ephemeral. So we really have to have if we're going to be rigorous about this and not, you know, sometimes when you say values, people are like, oh, or we're going to throw all, you know, how are we ever going to make a decision? We're going to throw all rigor out the window. You know, everybody's going to have their own opinion about what to spend money on, about what to invest in, about what decisions to make. We have to have new ways of measuring what we want. You know, you get what you measure and we need to figure out what to measure. I think we know what we want to get. And in closing, where's your hope for where globalization is in 20 years from now? Um, you know, I hope it's um, in support. Uh, I hope I hope other countries want to join back in the new, whatever this post-globalization thing is, because it's not least common denominator. It's higher, it's higher standards, but it's growth. And and other countries want to join and they want to say, you know what, we'll we'll put in place those climate standards because we want to be part of that club. Um, Karen Kornblu, former ambassador to the OECD, current uh, managing director at the German Marshall Fund of the U.S., as well as a board member of the Open Technology Fund and Radio Free Europe, which is very cool. 
Thank you so, so much for joining us on this question of Future of XYZ. Thank you so much. And for everyone watching and listening, if you are watching, you should know that you can find us anywhere you get your favorite podcast, Future of XYZ. If you're listening and you want to watch, you can find us at ripbs.org forward slash XYZ and follow us on Instagram and make sure to leave us a five-star review. That's how other people find out about us. Uh, We have lots of great conversations similar to this one with Karen, and we will see you again in two weeks' time. Karen, one more time, a huge thank you for the future of globalization. Thank you.